0: Uh, If you have a Bible, take it out and turn to John chapter 4 in verse 35. John chapter 4, verse 35. I'm going to read that verse, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll get started. But John 4.35 in my Bible says, Don't you usually say there are yet four more months, and then comes the harvest? But listen, I'm going to say to you, Lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white for harvest already. God, thanks for today. Thank you for creating sunshine to wake us up in the morning, and thank you for creating people that understand how to make musical instruments so that we can play them and join in song to praise your name. Thanks for giving us buildings to come into when the weather's not good. Thanks for you giving us the ability to communicate with one another and to read your word. Thanks for giving us friends and family. And thank you most of all, God, for your son. Because without you, Jesus, everything I said would be pointless anyway. So I love you. Amen. So one thing that's interesting is hearing Jeremy play a bunch of hymns is... um, In the church that I've been a part of, some of these old Bible verses have come alive in my life like they hadn't before. Like they were just these old Bible verses that if I went to Awana or Aaron and I went to some youth camp and we wanted to win the Sunday prize at the end of the week, we would memorize all these verses right away. And so that's what all these... Common things like lift up your eyes and look for the harvest is white already. Those kinds of things were to me. And, and singing songs, too, a lot of times, these old hymns would be just these words on a page that I grew up singing. And, you know, I remember when we'd have favorites night, I'd always say hymn 236 or something like that because I could sing a little melody part to it or whatever. But then to hear it played in a different style and be able to join in and truly think and contemplate what the words are. And then the same thing with these familiar passages, to start to live them out. It changes everything. And Jesus had been with his disciples for not a long time. And he'd been walking with them. And they were beginning to know him a little bit, a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And he's on this message, or journey to Jerusalem. Yeah. And on his way to Jerusalem, he says this weird thing. And in the King James Version of the Bible, it words it really cool. It says, I must needs go through Samaria. In my Bible, he kind of says, I got to get there. I got to go through Samaria. So they're headed off to Jerusalem and these guys, Jesus and the disciples, they could have gone to Jerusalem this one way that was up this little mountain and this is the way everybody went and it was this little narrow road and it was filled with crooks and robbers and all these different kinds of things and we get the story of the Good Samaritan from this road and he could have gone that way to Jerusalem. But he said, you know what? I'm going through the land that everybody hates. I'm going to walk through the desert and I may bump into some Samarians, but I have to go that way. God's telling me I got to go that way. So they set off on this journey and they start heading there. And they're getting hungry because the disciples are always that way. And so they're like looking for food. And pretty soon they're like, hey, hey, man, Jesus, we're super hungry. So we're going to go into the city and get some food. And Jesus is like, all right, all right, you guys go on. And he says, I'm going to go to this well. And it's the middle of the day. It's noon o'clock. And Jesus is headed to the well. And there's this woman there. And we've Probably all heard the story. But the reason the woman was at the well at noon, the hottest part of the day, is because she didn't want to talk to anybody. She had all kinds of problems with her life. Um, She didn't want them brought up. She didn't want to see people. She didn't want to get into the conversations. Probably, and, and this is just my theory. I think probably a lot of the women that would come together, water at this well, she'd probably done things with some of their husbands and junk like this, and she just didn't want to be bothered with them at all. So she picked the hottest, worst part of the day to go and gather the water. Now, getting water, it sucks, man. When I lived in Mexico for four years, and when we lived in Mexico, we had to go get water from the well. Granted, I didn't have to drop a bucket in the thing and, and pull it up, but I had to go every pretty much every day or every other day and fill up these buckets and load them into my car and drive them back to the house and, and put them in there. And I remember like watching my son or daughter. They'd be outside playing, and they'd come back in, and they'd start drinking water, and I'd be like, You really need a whole glass? I mean, you can just do a little bit because I'm going to have to go fill this thing up here in a little bit. So it's not a fun thing to do, man. But she's picking the hottest part of the day. And they would have these giant jugs, these huge jars, and they'd be lugging them around and carrying them around. And she picks the hottest part of the day to come because she doesn't want to talk to anybody. And Jesus walks up, and in his ever-loving, kind Jesus way, he says, Woman, give me some water. And she's like, she didn't get offended like I, I would think. Most people would get offended. She didn't get offended. First thing she said is, why would you, a Jew, be asking me, a Samaritan, for water? And he said, if you knew who he was talking to you, you'd be asking me for water. And she looks at him, she's like, you don't don't even have a jug. Are you greater than Moses who dug this? Well, how are you going to give me water? And he said, the kind of water I'm going to give you, you'll never thirst again. You'll never, and what she hears Because this is the way humanity is, is this physical answer to one of her needs. One of her needs is, I don't want to come get water anymore. It sucks. And she hears him say, I'll give you water, and you'll never thirst again. And she says, give me this water. I want it. But he's talking about something even deeper. She's like, give it to me. Sure, bring it, bring it. And he tells her, he cuts straight to her spiritual need, and he he says this. He says, bring me your husband, and then we can. And she's like, "Uh, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, I know. Actually, you've had five husbands. And the man you're living with right now isn't your husband. She's like, I think you might be a prophet or something. So then she gets uncomfortable. See, there's this weird thing in humanity too. Like when we start getting into real conversations and in-depth conversations and when we have community and start meeting people and talking to people, we love to talk about very surfacey things. Like, it's nice when all you guys wear your sports shirts because then I have something that I can easily get into conversation with you about. And I can say, oh, he likes the Cowboys, so I can say something to him. Oh, he likes the Broncos, so I can say something to him. We like these really surfacy conversations. And as long as things are surfacy like that, we're good and we're okay. But the minute we get into a conversation that starts getting deep, we panic. And that's what she does here because, see, he tells her, he brings out, she'd been coming to this well to hide her sin. She comes at the middle of the day so she doesn't have to talk about it. And Jesus brings it right out in front of everybody. He's like, I know you're not married. You've had five husbands. This is the thing she's trying to hide. And he puts it on display in front of both of them. So what does she do? She turns the conversation into this political-slash-religious argument. She's feeling uncomfortable. Her real life is being exposed, so she says, Don't you Jews worship in the synagogue in Jerusalem, but we worship on the mountain? Which one's right? That's like us getting in our political arguments on Facebook or wanting to talk about Calvinism or all these other things that are way outside the point. And we want to debate them and get into conversations with them or Hinduism or Buddhism, whatever. Who cares? Like, I don't want to argue about any of that stuff. And neither did Jesus, because you know what his answer was? Neither one. But there's coming a day, and actually that day is here right now, when the true worshipers, they won't go to some building in Jerusalem, and they won't go to some mountain over there, but the true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. And she says... I know when the Messiah, the Deliverer, the great Liberator, the one who's going to set me free, the one who's going to make the high places low and the low places high, the one who's going to make all paths straight and all things right, when he shows up, that's going to happen. Jesus tells her, the one who's talking to you, he is the Deliverer. Well, right at this pinnacle moment, the disciples, like they tend to do, start walking up and bumbling all over themselves. You know, like, I always think about the disciples, how awkward they were, because when the first time Jesus gets baptized and there's this booming voice from heaven, and it's God, and he's saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And the disciples are like, whoa, this is crazy. And John's like, what should we do? And John the Baptist is like, there goes the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, follow him. And they come running up and they're like, master, master, where are you staying? Like, they, here's the guy, the liberator, the one they've been waiting for. Could ask him anything. They want to know where he's staying, or when they get taken to this place, and there's up on this mountain of transfiguration, and there's Moses there and Elijah and all this kind of stuff. And Peter just starts blabbing and saying, "Hey, we should build some tents and live here forever." And God has to interrupt him, and he's like, "No." Uh, once again, this is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. And here he is with this moment, ma- with this woman, making a life moment with her. Something that's going to change her life forever. And the disciples come creeping back up, and, and it says that they didn't want to ask him, "What's this woman doing?" But when they start coming up, they're like, "Master, why don't you eat?" And it becomes uncomfortable. And so she's kind of like, ah, "I'm out of here," and she takes off back to her village. And he, I feel like he's frustrated in this passage because they're like, "Master, eat something." And he tells them, I have meat to eat that you don't even know about. And they're looking around, and they're like, did somebody bring him something to eat? And he said, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. And Then he says, don't you guys usually say there's four more months and then comes the harvest? Well, I'm telling you, the harvest is now. You see, Jesus was looking at him. He's like, I'm here doing God's will. You can't understand it. You see me talking to this woman, and you don't understand because all you see is what you see on the outside. But I, Christ, Jesus Christ, I see the heart, and I see something real. And my father sent me through Samaria, and I'm going to sit here, and I'm going to talk with her. But you guys, you guys are always making excuses. You're always saying, in four more months, then's the harvest. Four more months, then's the harvest. And he said, look, it's right now. Leave your excuses behind. And he says the same thing to us. Leave your excuses behind. Man, I've heard them. I've heard them all. I remember growing up, and, Jared and Jeremy's dad was my youth pastor. And once in a while, he'd give this real convicting message. And I, I remember one thing that he used to always talk about was, um, and at the time, it seemed insignificant. And now, as an adult, it seems much more significant. But he would tell me <coughs> and Aaron and, and other people to hang out with people that weren't getting much attention in high school. And I remember Aaron did an awesome job of it. Um, Like, there were these, well, it's a long story. You can ask me about it later. But Aaron did a great job of it. I didn't do such a good job of it. I had my basketball friends, and that's all I wanted to hang out with. And that's all I wanted to be around. And I used to tell myself, you know what, right now is not the time. I'm in high school. This is supposed to be great days. I need to spend all my time with my basketball friends. I'm working towards a scholarship. i got to do this kind of stuff. You know what, after high school, I'll have plenty of time to do what it is that God's calling me to do. Then I get into college. And in college, I hear these guys telling me, this is what God wants you to do. He wants you to go here or do this. And I, and I would think about these things in my quiet time, like, what is God's will? Because, you know, that's like that weird thing that's this big, huge question, what does God want for us? What does he want us to do? And I would struggle with that. And just on a side note, really quick, God's will is super easy to understand. It's just really stinking hard to believe. Like his will is so simple. He says things like forgive, love, have mercy, show grace, be courageous. You know who the first people are thrown into the lake of fire according to Revelations? Cowards. Be courageous, speak hope, have joy. All these things are simple things, and I remember being in college and having these opportunities to go and serve the less fortunate or whatever, but you know what? I was trying to get good grades in college, and I would tell myself as soon as I get done with college, as soon as I get married because I was looking for a girlfriend and all this different kinds of stuff, as soon as that happens, as soon as I get married, then I'll serve God, and then Shannon and I get married, and you can't marry God, right? You can't serve God right when you first get married. You know, you have to get to know one another and spend all kinds of time with one another, but when we have kids, that's when we're going to serve God. And then all of a sudden the kids showed up and they're like two years apart, and one of them would sleep and the other one would be awake, and then they'd flip flop constantly. And there was all these cleaning and crying and all these kinds of things happening. And I remember Shannon and I talking about it. You know what? You know when we're going to serve God? We're going to serve God when the kids get a little bit older and when they're like, they can take care of themselves and feed themselves and that kind of stuff. And now I'm driving Jacob to soccer games and refing soccer and handed to this and handed to that, and I'm full time chauffeurs. So I'm sitting there thinking, you know what? I'm going to start serving God? I'm going to start serving God as soon as the kids graduate high school and they get out and they're they're gone and and they're doing this this kind of stuff. And then I talk to people in our church that are like that. And they're empty nesters. And they're telling me, you know what? I don't have enough time for that right now because I'm at the height of my career and if I just put in five more good years, if I just put in six more good years and I put a little time, I'm gonna be able to retire and then I'll have all kinds of time and I'll be financially in a secure place and then I'll be able to serve God. And then we lived in Mexico and right across the border from Mexico South Texas. And I got to see all the people that had just retired and had all this money and free time to go serve God. What they did with that money is they bought big, giant RVs and they moved to South Texas. And they spent all their time there because they had worked hard and they had lived a long life and they needed some time for relaxation. And Jesus says, leave your excuses behind, man. I've heard them all. You can make them, and we can make We're good, Really, really, really good at making excuses. I can convince myself of a lot of stuff. And Jesus says, leave them behind. And then he tells them this. Lift up your eyes. Leave your excuses behind and then lift up your eyes. When I was a kid, um, video games were brand new, kind of. Yeah, they were. And I remember we had like all these Atari games that were super, super lame, you know, where you turn the little thing like this and you do, and you like bounce the little ping pong ball thing. And I remember my dad got us a ColecoVision for some reason. And I was like, holy cow, I got a ColecoVision. And there was this game on this ColecoVision. Does anybody remember ColecoVisions? Okay. You remember how there was like a dialing pad? Well, I still don't know what that was for, but there was like a numbering dialing pad. Anyway, I had my ColecoVision and I had this game called Burger Time. And like you would make these little hamburgers, and so you'd like walk across the bun, and they would fall down, and they would fall down levels. And when the pickles came to eat you, you would salt or pepper shake them. But I would get so into this game, and I'd just be there, like this. And I could hear my mom talking to me in the back, telling me to do whatever. you know. And I'm just like, okay, okay, whatever. And then I would hear my dad with this booming voice be like, Jonathan, look at me. And I'd be like, whoa. And I would look up, and I would see my dad, and he would have my attention. And Jesus is telling his disciples kind of the same thing. Lift up your eyes. Because what happens is we make all these excuses because we have a busy life and we're stuck in our life and we're dissatisfied with it and we're worried about this payment or this car has a flat or this is happening or this is happening and we're just stuck in this rut and we're looking down and we're looking at ourselves and Jesus is shouting to us, lift up your eyes. Get them off of all these problems and get them on God. Because when we finally lift up our eyes and we finally see Him, we sing a song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, and the things of this earth grow strangely dim. It's amazing how small my problems are when my eyes are lifted up. Because there's something weird about when I'm looking in at the face of God that things all of a sudden move into the infinite. They move into this mysterious place. When I lived in Mexico, we had um, th- this group called Johnson Ferry. and It was this gigantic church, and they would send three hundred freshmen, sophomores, and juniors every year to come down, and <coughs> we would go through this mission trip with them. and They and these kids were from one of the richest parts of Atlanta, and so you had a bunch of. Very, very wealthy kids. I mean, th- th- I, just one quick story is this girl one time I was driving the, the van and I could hear them complaining behind me. One girl, she was like 16 years old and she's like, My parents are only giving me 150 bucks a week spending money. And her friend's like, Are you kidding me? Does your gas have to come out of that? And she's like, No, I have a gas card, but still. And I'm just sitting there thinking, You gotta be kidding, 150 bucks a week? So anyway, that's the kind of kids these are. So they would come down and we would make all these plans and they, we would take them in and we would build all these houses for them. And we had these gigantic buses, okay? And these we had like six or eight, do you remember six six or eight buses and, and but that wasn 't enough for all these kids, so we 'd have to rent and hire all these buses so we 'd hire these buses, and I remember the day that these bus guys show up and, and they and they you know they 're growing pot plants in their buses and i mean it 's just this crazy thing, and they have like little stickers on the back that says Es mi guida, dios me gita dios cuida, or something like that and it's it 's for like um, Santa Muerte, which is this crazy uh, thing that they have there, and they would have all these stickers on these buses, and these guys would come and help us transport them over. But to get the kids to Mexico, to where we were staying, we had to cross over with our junky old school buses. When buses break down in the U.S., they give them to Mexico. So we'd get these junky broken buses, and we'd drive across, and we'd pick the kids up, and we'd drive them back. But we only had two buses that could cross the border, and they'd hold like 30 kids. So we'd have to make 15 crosses. And it takes about an hour and a half each cross. So it was just this long, hot process. So these kids all come down, and they have their nice air-conditioned luxury buses, and they all get dropped off there at the border, and they're sitting there waiting for us. And we cross over the border, and we pick them up, and they load up, and we start driving back, and they just start complaining immediately. Oh, it's hot in here. Why is this bus so gross? It's so cramped. If my dad was running this, he'd have 15 buses over here picking us up, on and on and on. Well, one of our buses broke down. Then, man, this one kid, I remember him telling me, he was like, 14 years old, and he's sitting there chewing me out. I can't believe you guys don't have two spare tires on this bus, and on and on and on. And I was like, dude, you're in Mexico, okay? Like, this isn't Atlanta. Just bear with us. And so we're trying to get it all fixed and get it going, complaining, 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 complaining. Their eyes were down here, and they were in their little, little circumstances, and they couldn't lift them up. As the week progressed, and they began seeing things that God was doing, Okay? There's this afternoon takes off, and they, the new buses come in, and they, and they go out for this ride. And I get this phone call on my cell. And it's a guy that's watching one of our, our locations. And he says, hey, uh, bus number 14 isn't here yet. It's 1130 in the afternoon. 9 o'clock in the morning is when bus 13, 14, whatever number. Because it's not here yet. And I was like, are you serious? And he's like, yeah. I'm like, OK. So I start checking what bus it is. And it's the bus, of course, with the guy growing the pot plant. with the little sticker in the back. Um, So we panic. So we're calling around, we're calling everybody, trying to find out what's going on. Can't get a hold of anyone. Two hours pass, three hours. And I had gone personally to these churches and told them, Mexico's safe, nobody's gonna get kidnapped, send your kids here, okay? So now I'm rehashing all this kind of stuff, talking with the youth pastor. I get a phone call from the guy, and he's like, Hey, your bus showed up. I was like, thank goodness, blah, blah, blah. That night we get back to the camp. All the kids are sitting there, and this kid goes, I want to tell a story. It's the kid who's been chewing me out, like if his dad was running this camp, how many things would be there. What happened is, these guys had gone on uh, on their little trip, and they'd gone over this bridge, and when they came down off the bridge, their bus broke down. Okay, This is how this kid starts out his story. we were going over this bus, over this hill, and God broke our bus down. Said, we were sitting there, we didn't know what to do, we looked around, there's no translators on the bus. The driver didn't speak. English. We're like, oh my gosh, we're all going to die. This guy comes walking across the street from a repair shop, and he says, do you guys speak English? And they all said, yes! Do you? And he's like, yeah. So they started talking with this repair shop guy. And he's telling them how, like, why are you here It's spring break? Why aren't you guys at the beach? And they're telling him we came to build houses in Mexico, all this kind of stuff. Ended up leading this guy to Christ. The difference was Their eyes had become focused on him. And in this moment, all of a sudden, the bus didn't break down. God broke their bus down. And this moment was moved into the infinite. And every single moment was a divine moment appointed by God. That's the difference when our eyes are lifted up. All of a sudden, we're not frustrated at the stoplight. We're not frustrated by the lady who's trying to make change at the convenience store. We all of a sudden recognize and see her as Christ saw her, as a lost treasure, as somebody struggling, as somebody that's filled with pain, has all kinds of hurts that we can't even imagine, and our problems grow strangely dim because we've lifted up our eyes and we've looked at the King of Kings. And that brings us to the third thing Jesus said. Leave your excuses behind. Lift up your eyes and look. Because we have this strange way of looking at people and things. We look at them as what they can give us and offer us and do for us. And when Christ came, he inverted that. Not what can you do for me. What can I do for you? Just like he told the woman at the well, if you knew who you were speaking to, you'd be asking me. And then what he does is he deposits little pieces of himself in every one of us that call on his name. We get a deposit, the Bible says, a deposit of the gospel inside of us. And so he leaves these little deposits of himself. And in Revelations, it says that he is writing his name on our hearts. He's describing himself right across the tablets of our hearts. He's writing that in there. And he fills us with this. And then he sends us out. And he says, the harvest is now. Go. Lift up your eyes. And look, stop making your excuses. You know what happens to us? too concerned with ourselves man or we're cowards we're afraid or we're grace hoarders or we're unforgivers or instead of being followers of Christ we turn into figure outers of Christ Mm -hmm. and he just says follow me you know what he did He offered grace everywhere he went. Like grace trailed behind him. And you know what? I've always heard grace is unmerited favor. And I'm like, okay, yeah, it's unmerited favor. And I've repeated that and repeated that and repeated that. But I don't really know what that means. But I'll tell you what it looks like. A friend of mine named Craig, (coughs) he uh, had all these crazy veins growing in his arm. And so many veins that the doctor said, if you don't... Start killing. If we don't start killing these veins, we're going to have to amputate your arm. So he goes to this doctor, and they're going to do these operations, and they're going to kill his veins. Do you know what the doctor did not do? The doctor didn't set Craig down right here and sit him on this chair and say, okay, Craig, we got to kill some of your veins. So here's what we're going to do. Here's a scalpel. Here's a little syringe that you can inject your veins with poison. Here's a YouTube video that you can watch of other people who've done this before. And here's the book I read when I was in in medical school. Just read these couple pages here and get started. He didn't do that at all. He performed the entire surgery on Craig. That's not shocking, I know. But he, he performed the entire surgery on Craig. He made it as peaceful as he could and let him listen to music, helped him fall asleep, then operated on his veins and checked up on him. But you know what? In Christianity, we do the exact opposite. We do the first thing. We say, oh, you're a Christian now? Oh, great. Well, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, YouTube. You have here. here here's an instruction book. Same one I read. You read it. Go get yourself fixed and come back and talk to us. But if we are leaving our excuses behind, if we are lifting up our eyes, and if we are looking on the fields, we're moved with compassion. I have this one last story son that Eddie's told me a million times. I don't know if the story is true or not, but who cares? What did people say one time? Never let the facts get in the way of a good story. So we're going to pretend the story's true. So this guy named Tony, he lives on the East Coast. And um, he was going to be, he went to Honolulu, Hawaii to speak at this conference. And so he flew over there, and um, the time difference is like eight hours or something like that. So he kept waking up super early in the morning. And like at 2 o'clock in the morning, he would get up, and he would he would go down to this little cafe, and he would have breakfast at this cafe. And um, the first morning he was there, he had this cup of coffee, and uh, he's sitting there, and these two prostitutes walk in, and they, and they start talking, and they're talking all their prostitution-type stories and all this kind of stuff. And he says that there was this guy sitting across from him with the newspaper, and he's sitting there, and he's just kind of like rattling the paper and clearing his throat because he doesn't want to hear these women talking. But for some strange reason, Tony's kind of compelled to listen to their stories. So he, he's listening. And this one girl, her name's Sarah, will say, she goes, you know what, tomorrow's my birthday. And the other girl goes, so what, you want me to bake you a cake or what? She's like, no, I, I'm, I've never had a birthday cake. I was just saying. They go on talking about their prostitutional like stories. So when they leave, Tony gets up and he walks up to the guy that's sitting behind the counter. Has everybody heard this story already? Okay, good. It was on Facebook for a while, but so anyway. So he goes up and he talks to the guy behind the counter and he says, Hey, I just heard them over talk, I just overheard them talking. He goes, Do they come in here all the time? And he's like, Yeah, pretty much every night. Do you want me to make you an appointment or something? And he's like, No, 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 no. What I'm wanting is, I overheard her say that it's her birthday, and I would like to bake her a cake and bring it here. And the guy's like, There are regulars here. You know what? That's a great idea. How about I bake the cake and you get some direct uh, decorations or something? So he's like, Okay, sounds good. So he said he gets up about midnight this next day. He rushes through town. He buys up all these decorations. He comes rushing back to the little cafe. He sets up all the decorations around in the cafe. And uh, he said, word must have got out because every prostitute in Honolulu had packed themselves into this little cafe. <laughs> and so they're waiting there, and they have the cake decorated and everything, and they're waiting for Sarah and her friend to come in, and Sarah and her friend come walking in, and they jump up and they yell, surprise, happy birthday, and she blows out the candles and everything like that. And they're all excited and jumping around, and, and they're like, let's cut the cake and eat it. And she goes, hold on, hold on, I, I don't want to make a big deal, and I don't live too far from here. I've never had a birthday cake before would you mind if I just took this home? I want to save it. And they're like, sure, whatever. So she heads out with her cake and Tony said like the air just kind of went out of the place. And everybody's just kind of like, eh. So he didn't know what to do so he says, everybody grab hands. So everybody grabs hands. And he said, let's pray. And he just starts praying. He, says he starts praying for everything he can think of and he's praying that these prostitutes will change their ways but if they don't that they'll be protected and that their handlers will be kind, and all these different kinds of things. And he prays blessings on the shop and all these different things. He's just praying and praying and praying and praying and praying and praying and praying. Praying Praying for everything he can think of. And when he finally finishes and says amen, that shop guy is right in his face. He said, you didn't tell me you were a preacher. Tony said, "I, I am. And he goes, what kind of church are you a preacher of? And Tony said, kind of church that would give a birthday cake to a prostitute. The guy said, you're a liar because there is no church like that. You know what? Sadly, he might be right. There's not a lot of churches like that. Because we're the other dude most of the time. We're the dude sitting there with our newspaper and they're saying something that bothers us or offends us and we don't want to look. We don't want to really look like Jesus says. Look on the fields. Don't just glance, but look. We don't really want to look. We want to rattle our paper or clear our throat or make sure that everybody knows, hey, we're not appreciating this conversation. But you know what Jesus would do? Well, we read what he did. He had a conversation. He took the time. He met her spiritual and her physical need. I'm pretty sure Jesus would give a birthday cake to a prostitute. Because if he couldn't or didn't, he wouldn't for me. Let's leave our excuses behind. Let's lift up our eyes and get focused on the King of Kings for once and not our dwindling bank account. And let's look, look, like really look at people, like not just what they are in this moment, but what God intends them to be. And let's preach the gospel, God's story of our life, what he's done in our life, to believers and non-believers both. And love grace. Grace.